else is better uh, because he has given us better hope, better city called Riverfest Fellowship, better place that we get to look forward to. And we're going to study about that a little bit tonight. You know, back in Hebrews chapter 11, we were reminded of great heroes of the faith who have run their race of faith before us and set an example to us. And as we turn the pages over into Hebrews chapter 12, we're now challenged to run with endurance uh, the race that the Lord has set before us. It's a race of faith. It's a race that happens amongst him as we go through it. And, of course, Jesus is our primary example in this chapter that is set forth as the one who endured. He endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And then the Bible goes and begins to remind us that we need to follow in Christ's example following the example of the heroes of the faith who have gone before us and run with endurance, run to the finish line, the race that the Lord Jesus has set before every one of us. And of course, um, uh, the whole idea that's communicated in verses four, really down through the end of the chapter, is, is this matter of endurance. And as we read through verses four, through uh, verse number 11, and even, even beyond that a little bit, uh, we were told that as we run this race, sometimes like a father disciplines his children to keep them on the right track, God's going to do the same thing for us. And we were told not to quit just because God makes some things in our life hard to redirect us, but allow him to do what he's doing. Uh, we want God to keep us on track, okay? I'd rather not fall in the ditch if I could avoid it. I'd rather be kept on track. And uh, so endure the chastening of the Lord. And then we are given a challenge, a goal to keep our eyes on as we're running. We're to pursue peace with all men and holiness, to become more like Jesus Christ. And that was our goal, the goal that was set before us. And all the while, God reminds us that he's given us grace, grace to be able to go on, his grace to be able to endure. Even when we feel like we don't have the strength to do it, his grace is sufficient. And he has abundant grace. As we learn from the story of Joseph, he has storehouses of grace that he can open up to us, more abundant than whatever the, 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 the dire uh, need of famine may be presenting in our life today. And I thank God for his grace. And so we're told that we have this grace of God and we're not to fail from it. We're to take advantage of the grace of God uh, unless, we, unless we get tripped up and, and the race we're running or unless we decide we want to fall out of the race or, or quit running entirely. Take advantage of the grace that God has given to us. And all of these truths set the foundation for what we're going to look at in the scripture today. And the theme, as we get to verse number 18 of Hebrews 12, is still endurance. We're challenged to continue to run with endurance. And what we are reminded of now here is that as New Testament believers, we aren't being asked to run a race of faith that we can endure. In the Old Testament, under the law, they were asked to run a race that they could not endure. And it was meant to be a teaching example, as we'll discover here in the scripture. But you and I, the race of faith that Jesus has set before us is, us is not a race that we cannot endure. And the reason we can endure it is because we have the grace of God. It's not all up to us to make it happen. But that's not how it was. And so there's a great contrast that is painted for us here on the pages of scripture. And if you look at Hebrews 12, uh, beginning in verse number 18, 
Um, let's read our text of Scripture, and we'll see this contrast. It starts in verse 18. Read the first phrase of verse 18. For ye are not come. Now just stop right there. Later, in verse number 22, read the beginning of verse 22. But ye are come. You see the contrast there? You're not come, but you are come. So where have we not come to? Well, it says in verse 18, You are not coming to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they, heard, uh, voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure, you see that word again? They could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceeding fear and quake. You've not come there. Verse 22. But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And boy, the, the scriptures here gives us a beautiful contrast that shows us once again another reason why Jesus is better. And it communicates to us a message tonight that God has not given us a race we can't endure. God has given us an unshakable hope, an unshakable kingdom that we're running to as the people of God. And it is to be our hope and our motivation that we look to as we run our race of faith. And let me just start by saying this. Too many Christians, whether professed or true Christians, too many people that call themselves Christians, spend their life running the wrong race. Some people who are professing Christians, they spend their whole life running a race, trying, trying to think that they have to do a bunch of good things to earn merit before God, to earn their way to heaven. We could put it that way. That's legalism for salvation. There's also spiritual legalism that many of us fall into as well. We understand that salvation is by grace through faith, but for so many of us, we get saved, and then we go back to law-keeping to try to keep our value before God. I've got to do all these things or God's mad at me or God doesn't want to talk to me. We put all these rules and stipulations into our relationship with God that are not written into the new covenant that we've studied in the book of Hebrews. We've got to be careful of this thing. And God is trying to give you an encouragement here in this example to keep running, to keep going, because you've not come to that kind of mount. You come to Mount Zion. We're going to see this uh, example demonstrated for us here in the scripture and I believe that God's word wants to remind us of a truth that will really keep us going in our race of faith um, the hope of heaven boy when we truly understand it it'll keep you going let's pray together and ask God to speak to our hearts Father we come before you and, and uh, we just need you to speak to us in a very real way um, and uh, Lord I just pray that you would uh, give a very present help to those who um, uh, in need of it tonight, especially if they're a little bit down or struggling in the race. And Lord, I know I get there. We all get there. And uh, we need these encouragements and these admonitions from the scripture. And I pray you'd correct us, renew our minds where we've been thinking the wrong way and falling into a trap of legalism. And I pray, God, that you would set us free with the gospel of grace 
And Lord, allow us to understand what you have given to us. Lord, not that we may abuse it, but that we may live in light of it. Um, and Lord, truly run the race of faith that you've set before us. And so Holy Spirit of God, I pray you'd speak to our hearts in the way that only you can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. First off tonight, I want you to consider with me uh, the race you didn't sign up for, okay? Um, I heard the story about a, a very, very famous female runner who uh, was going to run a, a very well-known race in the state of Connecticut. And uh, she got up that morning and got in her car and set her GPS to go where the starting place where this race was supposed to start. And it was supposed to start in a little strip mall area that was, that was predetermined. And uh, she got a little lost, so she stopped at a gas station and asked the attendant. And the attendant knew about a race that was taking place, and she knew that it was starting at a, at a small uh, a strip mall parking lot. And so she gave her directions to go to this place, and the runner went there and walked up to the table. And uh, when she got there, she noticed there wasn't quite as many people there as uh, what she thought they were going to be in the race. She's a very well-known runner, and she thought she was going to have a whole lot more competition, but she just thought, well, it's going to make it a little bit easier for me, I suppose. And so she signed up for the race. They didn't have her number or anything. Um, and she was a little shocked by that. She thought she had pre-registered for the race, but you know where this is leading. Come to find out, she runs the race. She runs the race. She's so excited about it, only to find out that she had ran the wrong race. It was just a little no-name race, and she, she entirely missed the race she was supposed to be running. And uh, the main difference she felt was she was supposed to get a paycheck for the race she was supposed to be running. She didn't get a paycheck for the, the race that she ran. And that's a big bummer there. But you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, I think, spend their life running the wrong race when it comes to our spiritual life. We're trying to run a race to prove ourselves to God, to uh, prove our own value to God, instead of running the race that the Lord Jesus for us by faith. And boy, we need to understand the difference between these two things. And so first, we're going to take a look at the race you didn't sign up for. Verse number 18, the Bible says, For ye have not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken any more to them. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceeding fear and quake. Now I want you to consider what the Bible starts off telling us here in verse 18. It starts off by saying, for ye have not come. Now that word come in the Greek, it literally means to draw near or to approach. By the way, that's a, that's a resounding theme throughout the book of Hebrews. We're told about the finished work of Jesus Christ that has given us the ability to draw near to God. But what we're told here is that you have not drawn near to this mount. Anybody know what mount it's talking about? Mount Sinai is what it's talking about. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to uh, Exodus chapter 19. I want to read about where uh, the account being spoken of here uh, actually happened in the Scripture. And, of course, we understand that the place where the law was given was Mount Sinai. And uh, throughout Scripture, Mount Sinai is a picture of the law of God uh, because that's where the Ten Commandments, that's where the law of God was given to Moses, and he began to pin it down for the people of God. And here on Mount Sinai, God began to impress upon his people his great power and his great 
holiness. And one of the distinguishing marks uh, that happened when the children of Israel faced Mount Sinai is they came face to face with the fact that God is a very powerful God and he's very holy. He, does, he, he, he is perfect. He is sinless. And the people of God could not stand to be in his presence because they were sinful people. And whereas God was right there on the mount, God was right there where they could almost reach him. When God was there on that mount, all they wanted to do was run away because of his holiness. That's what the people of God began to learn on Mount Sinai. Notice how we see it in the scripture, Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16. If you're there, say amen. The Bible says, and it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof descended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And uh, uh, verse 19, And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon the Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And boy, when God first showed up on that mount, the people of God, they were so intrigued. Their first inclination was to try, want to try to run to God, want to try to follow Moses to see him on the mount. So the Bible says God sent Moses back down and told, them, told him to tell the people to stop. Tell them that even if an animal tries to cross the barrier, that they were to be thrust through with an arrow. Because if you tried to come into the presence of God, you were going to die. That's what was going to happen. When Moses went up into the mount, we know that God began to give the Ten Commandments, and uh, the, the Bible actually tells us that when God first came down on the mount, that he literally began to speak these commandments, these Ten Commandments, to the people of God. Can you imagine hearing the voice of God thunder from that mountain on that day? Let's see how the people of God responded to it. Chapter number 20, um, and uh, let's look at verse number 18. The Bible says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces that you what? that you sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Don't miss this. Mount Sinai, it did not draw God's people closer to God. It drove them farther away. Because when God's people were confronted with God's holiness, they realized they had no business being close to God. That should be a sobering thing for us today, to respect the holiness of God, to understand the fear of God. It's a very real thing. Now, thank God for his grace. But listen, you can't truly appreciate the grace of God until you understand the holiness of God, until you understand the need 
uh, to have a fear of God. We are sinful beings, and God is an infinitely perfect being, and I don't think we'll ever fully comprehend his magnificence and his glory and his holiness. But such a holy God, the people of God could not stand to be in his presence. And I want you to consider uh, a few of the reasons that are given us here back in Hebrews chapter number 12 uh, for why this mount so far from drawing people closer to God drove them farther away. First off, if you look in Hebrews 12 with me and verse number uh, 18, the Bible says, for ye are not come unto the mount that might be what? Touched. It's a mount that might be touched. Here's what's in interesting about it. It was a mount that might be touched, but it was death for the people of God to touch it. In other words, you could touch it, but if you did, you'd die. So you wouldn't touch it. It was there, it was tangible, it was within your grasp, but you could never touch it. That was the message of Mount Sinai. Though you could approach it, you dare not do so for fear of death. Verse number 20 of that same text, it says in the middle of the verse, if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be what? Stoned or thrust through with a dart. There was, they, they were commanded to put people on guard so that people couldn't come into the presence of God. Hey, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there where the presence of God was continually coming down, what did God put at the gates of all, at the entrance of the garden? He put the cherubim with a flaming sword. No one can come into the presence of God. You're a sinful being. You can't enter into my presence. That's the message that was given to the people of God at Mount Sinai. And it was important for them and for us to understand that. And so this was one, this is a mount that drove people farther away from God instead of drawing them closer because it was a mount that might be touched, but it was death to touch it. I find number two, it was a mount that burned but was filled with blackness, darkness, and storm. Storminess. Verse 18, the Bible says that it burned with fire, um, and nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, or a, a storm cloud, uh, a welling up storm cloud, tempest. That's what it's talking about there. And I find this interesting. It was a mount that burned with fire. And yet when you looked at it, it was pitch black. It burned, but it was darkness. It burned, but it was blackness, the Bible says. It burned, but there was a swirling tempest so that you could not possibly see what was going on upon that mount. And it is a picture of what the law is in every one of our lives today. The law is a burning truth that reveals the darkness of our hearts. But when you turn to the law, it gives you no light on how you can be remedied from your lost situation. That's what the law does. It's a burning truth, but there's no light that comes along with it. There's no revelation that comes along with it. The law reveals that you're a sinner, but it doesn't show you how you can be saved from your sin. And uh, so there's a picture that's given to us there about the law. And, you know, the law can only reveal to you how wicked you really are, but it can do nothing to save you. But people who only preach the law, boy, they're missing the whole point of what God's trying to communicate to us in the scripture. I'm a man that believes that we ought to preach, thus saith the Lord. And you know what? There are, there are too many preachers that won't stand up today and say what God's word has to say about the sinful issues of our time. 
And friend, people still need to be called out for sin. They still need to understand that right is right and wrong is wrong. And the reason they need to understand it is so that they can understand they're lost and they need a Savior, and the Savior is Jesus Christ. If you only preach the law, it gives, no people, it gives people no solution. They come to a mouth that burns, but's in blackness. And people can know that they're in sin and still be lost for the remainder of their days if all they come to is Mount Sinai. And so it's a mount that drives people away from God, number three, because uh, it is a mount which echoed the warning sounds of trumpets. Verse 19, the Bible says, uh, you are not come unto the mount uh, with the sound of a trumpet. Now, this wasn't Israel sounding the trumpets. This was trumpet sound coming from the mount, I believe. And boy, this, this foreboding warning sound, every time the trumpet sounded, it, it struck up a, 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 a cause of fear in the hearts of all God's people who are around. You need to stay away. You need to get back. This is a holy place. This is a reverent place. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the people of God heard a trumpet from heaven, and it said, stay away one of these days. For those of us that are the people of God, believers in the New Testament, we're going to hear a trumpet sound, and it's going to be a trumpet telling us to come on home to heaven. I'm thankful for that. But boy, the trumpet that they heard from that mount said, stay away, stay away. You can't come into this place. You can't approach here. You don't belong here. That's what the trumpet told them. It was a mount that drove God's people away. I see, fourthly, it was a mount where God's word was heard, but it could not be endured. It was a mount where God's word was heard, but it could not be endured. Verse number 19, the Bible says, And of the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not what? They couldn't endure that which was commanded. And we understand from what we've just read back in Exodus that when the people of God first, heard, first saw God come down on the mount, their first inclination was, I want to go see him. But after they heard God began to speak and they heard the thunder of his words and they heard what he had to say, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, bear false witness against thy neighbor. And he went on down through the Ten Commandments. They began to hear those truths and it was like a, 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 a a, a nail being pierced into their hearts. Every one of them began to get convicted about sin and to get convicted about issues in their life that made them realize, I can't go near him. I don't want to hear what God has to say. Moses, you go up and hear what God has to say. If I listen to any more of this, I'm going to die. You go, you, go, you, go, you go listen to what God has to say and I'll just stay here and whatever you tell me God says, I'll do it. I can't handle listening to the voice of God coming from that mount. That's, what the people, that's how the people of God responded as they began to hear God's voice thundering from that mount. This was a voice, God's voice, that struck terror, terror into the souls of God's people. Such was the giving of the law at that day. And that's why at that point, God's people cried out for a mediator. Can somebody else go up to God? Can somebody else get God's word for me and bring it down to me because I can't handle it myself? By the way, hey, if you tried to find salvation by the works of the law, all you have to do is go back to Mount Sinai to realize how foolish that really is. 
You went to Mount Sinai and you heard the voice of God thundering and you saw the fire that was uh, fire that was burning on that mount that was blackness and you saw all of these things taking place. It would cause you to do the same thing that it caused Israel to do, to run away and to beg for a mediator to go talk to God for you. Thank God we have a mediator who's come down and has bridged the gap that existed between God and man. That's Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But I see a fifth reason that this mount drew people away from God because it was a mount so formidable that even Moses was terrified and trembled at the sight of it. Now, look at what the Bible says there in verse number 21. It says, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceeding fear and quake. You know, the first time Moses came into the presence of God, remember where it was? It was another fire-burning experience. It was a burning bush. The bush burned, but it was not consumed. On that mount, the fire consumed. Moses, even Moses, who had spent much time in the presence of God, looked at that mount, and it terrified him. He quaked at the sight of it. I'm sure he quaked every step he took up into that mount. Even Moses himself, the servant of God, was intimidated at the sight of that mount. And boy, when I think of trying to find righteousness before God by my own law keeping, it causes me to tremble too because I know who I am. And if that's what's needed to approach God's presence, I'm never going there. I'm never gonna be good enough. I exceeding fear and quake if I think about approaching God based on my own righteousness. I can't do it. But you are not come there. <laughs> Where are we come then? That's the race we haven't signed up for. So what is the race we have signed up for? Well, look at the next verse there with me, if you would. Hey, if you're still with me, say amen. The Bible tells us here, as we move on in the scripture, um, uh, verse number 22, it says, but you are coming to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Let me say something to you before we dig into this passage here. At Mount Sinai, God made clear the distance between a holy God and sinful man. And we've studied this distance as we've gone throughout the book of of Hebrews, but uh, uh, the old covenant system that was based out of Mount Sinai, it was just a continual reminder to God's people of the distance that existed between sinful man and a holy God. Take, for example, the law about the leper. If you were a leper in the Old Testament days, and even at Jesus' day when he came, came, people were still under the law, you were a leper. And you were commanded by the law whenever you went into the city to cover your face, wear a mask, ironically, all right, to cover your face and walk as you went throughout the city and cry, unclean, I'm unclean, stay back. You had to walk, you imagine walking through Walmart doing that? Now, it'd be pretty comical, I'll give you that, all right? You won't get criticized for wearing a mask right now, but if you start shouting unclean, you'll clear out the aisle really quick, I guarantee you. They had to go through and shout that. And yet, those same lepers who were rejected by the law 
ran to Jesus and said, if you, if you will, Jesus, you can heal me. And Jesus didn't say, get out of here. Jesus didn't say, put your mask back on and start crying unclean. Jesus would reach down and touch him and say things like, I will be clean. And he healed him. And so far from being a proponent of uh, furthering the idea of the law, the Bible says that, uh, in fact, John chapter 1 and verse 17, it says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the grace of God that allows us to draw nigh. You understand the law was never meant to save us. The law was meant to show us how helpless we are and how much we need a Savior. All right? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 tells us the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ. The law teaches us how helpless we really are and how much we need Jesus. And I'm so glad we have not come to Mount Sinai. Amen? But we are come to Mount Zion. That's what we begin to see next here in the scripture. This is what we did sign up for when we entered in this race of faith. And boy, what a relief it is to move from Mount Zion, to move from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, to move from the system of the law to grace, to move from the old covenant system to the new covenant that has been established by Jesus Christ, our Savior. And you know, these Hebrew believers, they were reminded here again in this chapter that you're not coming to God by that old way, but you're coming by the new and living way that Jesus has made possible for us. And you know, by faith, we as believers have entered into faith in Jesus Christ, which has given us access to the heavenlies, which has given us access to walk right in to the very presence of God. And that access has been given to us, not because of our own goodness, but because of God's grace. That's why we have been given access. And boy, what a blessed thought that is for us to understand. And so everything uh, uh, that, that is described about Mount Zion here in the scripture, it gives us just a little glimpse of the benefits that are ours through coming to God by this way. And I just want to think about them for a couple minutes as we close things out here tonight. Um, as we think about where we are come to, Mount Zion, just think about these things with me. First off, we are come to a place called Mount Zion. That's what the Bible first says in verse 22. It says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now, where's Mount Zion? It's in Jerusalem. It uh, was the place where David built his citadel, the strongest place in all of that region, the strongest place in the city. And Mount Zion always stood in the Old Testament uh, as a structure that was a place of security. We think about Mount Zion, we think about uh, a place of absolute security. And boy, the place that we have become a part of, the place that we call home, is a place of absolute security today as well. Hey, go to Psalm chapter 46. I'm going to go a little over tonight, but it's going to be good, I promise you, all right? Psalm chapter number 48. Psalm chapter 48. You need to leave, you walk out. Um, I won't even get mad at you, okay? Psalm chapter 48, verse number one through three. Let's read these out loud together. You ready? Let's read them together. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for a situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces, a refuge. 
Boy, what a beautiful place. God is known in this place, Mount Zion, as a, as a person of refuge. Mount Zion is always a place of security, and I'm glad, hey, for you and I that have entered into the citizenship of that holy city of Mount Zion, that it's a place of absolute security for us. Nothing can take our place in that heavenly location away from us. And so we are come to Mount Zion. I see number two, that we are coming to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 22, it calls it the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the city that back in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, as we read, uh, the Bible tells us that the patriarchs of old, they were looking for this city. They were, they were looking forward to entering into this city. We don't have time to go back and read it now, but Hebrews 11, verses 10 through 16, tell us about how the patriarchs lived, looking, anticipating the fact that one day they were going to go to this city. Let me tell you something. Hey, church, this is a literal city. This is not figurative language being spoken of about here. There is a heavenly city. There is a new Jerusalem. And one of these days, you and I, as the people of God, are going there. And I thank God for that truth. You turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Boy, there's so much truth that tells us about this city. That The Bible tells us about the dimensions of this city, that it's four square. The Bible tells us about the walls of this city, about the gates of this city, about the streets of this city, how they're paved with gold. tells us about the crystal river that's flowing through this city. It calls it the New Jerusalem. One of these days, this heavenly city, uh, after the tribulation is over, it's going to come down and hover over the earth earth during the millennium that is going to take place and Revelation chapter 21 tells us about the fact that we're going to this city and hey in this city the Bible says there's no temple there because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb they're the temple there they're the ones that we worship there. Uh, there there's no gathering place we have to go worship we're going to be in the presence of God throughout all of eternity in that place right there called heaven hey there's no light in this heavenly city there's no light in this heavenly Jerusalem because the the Bible says that the glory of God lightens it and the Lamb of God is the light of it. And boy, I can't wait to go to this city. The Bible has so much to tell us about this heavenly city. You know, I've never been much of a city boy, okay? But God's going to make one out of me, I suppose. But you think about it, I was telling the kids this as we've been studying through the book of Revelation, uh, the dimensions of this city, uh, if I'm not mistaking it, Austin, correct me if I'm wrong, okay? I believe it's a thousand, a thousand by a thousand by a thousand. Uh, it's a it's a square shaped city, miles, thousand miles, and uh, uh, you could you could almost span the entire United States and fit that into the dimensions of what this city is called. All right, now you imagine how many people they cram into places like New York, okay, and uh, other places like that. But we're talking about a city that's just about nigh as big as the United States of America, okay, and uh, that's heaven, and. Uh, 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 by the way, it's a thousand miles high as well, okay? And uh, I don't know if there's going to be floating houses in there. I don't know what it's going to be like. But boy, I can't wait to find out. And I can't wait to go to that heavenly city. And so it's called the uh, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here's another thing about the place we're going to. We're going to an innumerable company of angels. End of verse number 22 tells us. An innumerable company of angels. That heavenly city we're going to live with the angels. We're going to be able to see the angels. And boy, that's going to be a blessed thing. You know, um, uh, 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 the Bible tells us that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. 
Imagine what it's going to be like when all the redeemed are up there together. What joy there's going to be as we walk with the Lord, as we walk among the angels. To an innumerable company of angels, I see a fourth thing here. We're coming to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And this took me a while to figure out. I'll be honest, I had to dig in real deep to get this. But the general assembly, that phrase, the general assembly, it comes from a Greek word um, that literally means a feastal gathering of the whole people. It has the idea of the different uh, types of feasts that the people of God would have in the Old Testament. When you think of a feastal gathering of the church that's going to take place one of these days, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know for sure if that's what it's talking about here, but boy, when you think about the general assembly, the church coming together, I know one feast gathering we're going to be having, and I think we're going to have a lot of them too, okay? But boy, I'm looking forward to that day. The general assembly will gather together up there, and then it says the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And the church, that's the Greek word, ecclesia, the called out assembly. We know who we are, all right? We're the ones who have been redeemed during this church age that have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to go join the Lord Jesus there at the rapture. And the Bible says we're the church of the firstborn. Now, I've got to mention this because we've got some churches of the firstborn who are in here. And uh, not in here, but in our city. And uh, sometimes you can get uh, uh, th this type of thing confused. Well, it says it in the Bible. I've heard people say those kinds of things. So let me explain what it's talking about when it talks about the firstborn here. Take your Bibles and go to James chapter number 1. James chapter number 1. What we discover here in James 1 is that as believers, we are the firstborn of God's new creation. The new creation that has been made through faith in Jesus Christ. James chapter number 1. And verse number 18, if you're there, say amen. Of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of what? First fruits of his creatures. Now, hey, we're, we are the uh, uh, first fruits of uh, uh, the, the ones who get to experience the new creation that is in Christ Jesus. And consequently, as opposed to the tribulation saints and, and such the like, uh, we are going to be the, the first ones to be able to enjoy the glories of heaven one of these days. We're going to be called on up there. And, uh, and so that's one of the things that it's talking about here. And boy, the Bible says, the church of the firstborn whose names are already written in heaven. You go to the book of Revelation, you'll find out that there's a book called the book of life. And in the book of life, there's just names written. The names written of all those who believed in Jesus Christ. The names of all of the redeemed. And I'm glad my name is written down there. I'm glad I'm already a citizen in heaven. I don't have to apply for citizenship. I don't have to take the test. Jesus Christ has already taken it for me, and he's already granted me citizenship there. And Boy, Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, it tells us one thing we can rejoice about is that our names are written in heaven. And boy, I'm thankful for that truth. And so there's the church, the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn. That's the place we're going to. I see a fifth thing here. We are come to God, the judge of all. You see that in verse number 23? God, the judge of all. Now listen, I know we've been going a while. Okay, we've been going about 30, 38 minutes, okay? Um, God is the judge of all. That's a very intimidating place for a sinner 
to be. That's a very unbelievable place for a saint to be. Let me just summarize it by saying this. I'm going to stand before the judge of all, unashamed and with no fear. You know why? Because I've already, my sins have already been judged. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned. I'm saved. I'm saved. John chapter 3 and verse number 18 tells us, He that believeth on him is not condemned. I'm not condemned. I'm, one day I'm going to go up and stand in front of the judge of the whole world, the same God who is going to stand before on the great white throne all of the lost people throughout the ages and read to them their sins and condemn them to the lake of fire for all of eternity. That God who is the judge of all, I'm going to walk right up before him without any fear or apprehension. Not because I'm great, not because I'm good, but because Jesus' blood has cleansed me from all of my sin. The story of a, of a, of a German emperor uh, uh, centuries, centuries ago, his name was William I, and uh, it's an old story. He was standing in, in, in his, in his uh, stately regalia in front of all of, his, uh, all of the officers of his realm and, and even some people from other kingdoms, and they were strategizing for a war that was about to take place, and all of these prominent people were there, and nobody dared speak up unless the emperor gave them permission to be able to do so. And yet the emperor's son walked into that room, and in front of everybody else, he walked right up to his dad, little boy. He sat on his lap began to ask him a question. The emperor just set everything else aside, like this was in the room, and gave his boy the attention he needed, answered his question, and then sent him back on his way to the, to the, to the affair of planning for that war. And boy, it was a beautiful picture of the privilege that you and I have before God, the judge of all. The whole world might be scared to stand in his presence, but I'm not, I'm not scared to stand in his presence. I can come to his presence any time, any day, and for all of eternity, we'll be living there in his presence before God, the judge of all. That's not, a, that's not a scary thing. That's an awesome thing, okay? That's where we're going to, to stand before God, the judge of all. By the way, I'm also glad I'm going to go stand before the one who's going to right all the wrongs in this world. God, the judge of all. A lot of things we can get out of that right there. We've got to move on. Number six, we are come to the spirit of just men made perfect. The spirits of just men made perfect. Now, this is a reference to Old Testament saints. Uh, back in Hebrews chapter 11, um, verses, the last two verses of the chapter, it talks about how uh, the Old Testament saints, they're not yet, they're not yet, they haven't yet received the promises. Uh, because they, without us, the New Testament believers, could not be made perfect. But there's coming a day, there's coming a day, you're listening? And those dead bodies of those old saints are going to be resurrected along with us. And we're going to be joined together in heaven. And those spirits of just men in those Old Testament times are going to be made perfect right alongside of us. And we're all going to be joined into, he into heaven there together. There'll be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There'll be old Jonah. And get, he can tell us some fish tales. And boy, it's going to be a, a hallelujah day when we get up to heaven be able to see some of those heroes of the faith that we've read about and studied for all of these years. The spirits of just men made perfect. And boy, that's, that's a good thing for us to understand. I see this as well. Number seven, we're come. The Bible says in verse 24, I want to slow down here for just a minute. Hebrews 12 and verse 24. Into Jesus, the mediator 
of the new covenant. Hey, you remember what God's people asked for on Mount Sinai when they experienced the condemnation on Mount Sinai? They begged for a mediator. They begged for Moses to go hear God's word for them and convey it to them. That's the kind of mediator they wanted. A mediator who would listen to God for them and tell them what God said. Jesus isn't that kind of mediator. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He's a mediator that doesn't just tell us what God says. He's a mediator that saves us and brings us into God's presence so we can hear what God says. That's the kind of mediator that Jesus says. You know, a mediator is someone who acts on the behalf of two parties. Jesus isn't just our mediator. He's God's mediator, all right? Jesus gives, uh, Jesus gives us access to God, but he also opened the door for God to be able to commune with us. See, God wouldn't have fellowship with people before the finished work of Jesus Christ, but now, like it was in the Garden of Eden, you and I can walk with God. You and I can spend time in the presence of God. God communing with us and us communing to God. That's made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed. He's given us access to the very presence of God. That's where we've come. Heaven, the most glorious part of that heavenly city, the most glorious goal that we have to look forward to is Jesus, our mediator the one who's given us access. Boy, so much more we could say about that. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says there's one and there's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. He's it. Here's the final thing and we'll be done tonight. The final thing the Bible says about where we've come to, we've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of of Abel. This is my favorite truth of the whole passage. I hope you're still alert enough to get it, okay? <laughs> I know we were going a little long tonight. Jesus, mediator, and then it says we've, we've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, you know the story of Abel in the Old Testament. You can go back to Genesis 4 and read about it if you need to be reminded of it. Abel and Cain, uh, Cain and Abel, they were brothers, first two, first two brothers that ever lived on the earth, and of course, we know Cain slayed Abel because Abel offered up a more righteous sacrifice than him, and he was jealous, and, and we understand those things that took place there. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4, and I think it's verse 24, that the, that the Lord told Cain, the blood of your brother, what was it doing? Cries out to me from the ground. What did it say? Guilty. You're guilty. You've murdered. You've sinned. The blood of Abel, that's what it spoke when the blood of Abel was communicated there. Now, some people think that the blood is talking about uh, the sacrifice that Abel offered up, which was just a type that pointed to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so you could interpret it that way as well. And the message is still the same, though. The blood of Abel communicated a temporary fix or it communicated a guilty sentence, but the blood of Jesus that sprinkled on, on the mercy seat in heaven. It was one time that it was applied. And when Jesus applied that blood, that blood forever communicates forgiven. 
that blood forever communicates there is no condemnation. Abel's blood cried out from the ground, guilty. Jesus' blood cries out from heaven, forgiven forever. That's what we have to look forward to. See, Mount Zion, it makes us want to come to God. It makes us want to go to heaven. Mount Sinai drives us away. And so I ask you again the question in conclusion. Are you running the right race? Have you been running to Mount Zion? Or have you been running to Mount Sinai, trying to prove your own worth to God? When all the while, where we have come to as the people of God, is not Mount Sinai. We don't have a God that we can't touch, that we can't approach, that we can't draw near to. We have a God who has shed his blood so that we can draw nigh. We have a God who has made it possible for us to endure in this race of faith. That's where we've come to. And thank God, we're going to a heavenly city where we'll be with him throughout all of eternity. The Bible calls that hope of heaven our blessed hope. And boy, when you get weary down here with the things that are going on in this world, you just think of heaven. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me there from heaven's open shore, and I can't be at home in this world anymore. What a day that'll be, we sang it a moment ago, when we see Jesus. Boy, when you get a little weary down here with your race of faith, just remember heaven. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let's all bow our head and close our eyes together.